Philippians together. It's going to be a long... And just a reminder, on Sunday nights, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently studying in the Gospel according uh, to the Maccabees, and uh, a Gospel according to John tonight, and then the Lord's Supper as well. Well, we come to a very favorite, um, well-known and favorite passage in Philippians uh, in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, thank you there is something in this world that is going to outlive the heavens and the earth. All of its shaking, all of its changes, all of its uncertainty, all of its uh, frailty. And that is your word. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to build the foundation of our life upon it. We pray, Lord, that you would Fill us fresh with your Holy Spirit to be able to allow these truths now to have an impact upon our lives today, the important impact that you want them to have. We pray that this morning you would take your eternal word and give it an eternal place in our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. And we pray for this work of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. When the Apostle Paul begins chapter 3 here, and of course there were no chapters in the original letter, he begins with the word finally. Uh, It doesn't mean that he's bringing the letter to a close. Um, uh, Oftentimes uh, preachers or teachers or uh, Bible teachers or teachers of any kind can say uh, finally long before they're ever bringing uh, that teaching in for a landing. And... uh, can be fairly disappointing for people to hear uh, finally halfway through the sermon and then it doesn't, uh, doesn't land. But it, the word that is used here for finally, uh, he, he, it has the idea and, and can be just as easily translated as, as for the rest or furthermore. And so 
What Paul is saying is really furthermore here, it indicates that he's changing subjects uh, in this. You notice in verse one, he uh, uses the word rejoice once again. He continues this theme all the way through the letter. And, uh, but now he continu- continues the theme of joy by addressing uh, one of the greatest threats to joy that any Christian uh, will ever face. He prefaces his instruction here uh, concerning uh, this uh, threat to our joy by letting us know in verse one, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. So he is uh, someone who is conscious of his audience and he lets them know that I know full well when I say these things that I'm repeating myself. He had evidently communicated these things either orally when he was present with them uh, at some time or by uh, another letter. And there is always uh, with the speaker or with the writer when you're repeating something, you're Uh, There's a self-consciousness about it. You don't want the congregation to think that you've forgotten that uh, you've said that before. Uh, But the circumstances here have changed for them, and it bears repeating. So he says uh, that it's not tedious for him to do this. He's not uh, repeating himself just to repeat himself. There is a difference between uh, uh, repetition, vain repetition, and repetition. The one is useless and the other is valuable. And so he says, I repeat this to you for uh, your safety. And here he warns the church against false teachers and a specific kind of false teacher that was known in the early church as uh, Judaizers. It appears that when Epaphroditus made his way from Philippi uh, to the city of Rome, delivered the gift to the Apostle Paul, of course the Apostle Paul being very curious about uh, the the, uh, condition of the church, the health of the church, inquired about it, and uh, Epaphroditus uh, informs him uh, about that, informs him about a division that is taking place in the church that is a threat uh, to it. Paul addresses that, has addressed it already in the letter. He'll continue to do that later in the letter as well. But apparently Epaphroditus also informed the apostle Paul uh, that there were Judaizers who had now come into the church and were attempting to draw people, Christians in the church, into their uh, legalism. In the early church, Judaizers were people who called themselves Christians, but they tried to force uh, Gentile Christians to come under the Jewish customs uh, as a condition for salvation. Uh, they said you could be, uh, were saved by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and keeping the law of Moses or keeping the Ten Commandments, or uh, keeping the Jewish feasts. And most specifically, uh, they taught, which created the uh, first great uh, council in Jerusalem to address it in Acts chapter 15. They taught, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot uh, be saved. And that this legalism, especially uh, this idea that a Christian couldn't be saved except 
through faith in Christ and being circumcised according to the law of Moses, that this is a focus of this passage uh, is made clear in the passage when Paul speaks of circumcision in verse 3. He speaks of their confidence in the flesh in verse 3. And then in verse 9 about righteousness being found only through faith in Christ. Just about everywhere that the Apostle Paul went, In the course of his three missionary journeys, he would come into a city, he would preach the gospel, Uh, people would respond to that uh, gospel that the forgiveness of sins and salvation is a free gift from God and to be received by means of just a simple faith in, in Jesus Christ. Many people would heed that message, they would repent, they would put their faith in uh, Jesus and uh, be born again by the Holy Spirit. And everybody would be thankful, everybody would be filled with joy, they would get moving on now in the the beauty of this new relationship with God. And and then as soon as Paul would leave this joy-filled group of Christians, move on to the next city, these Judaizers would come in behind him and Uh, they would come in among the Christians and declare that they couldn't be saved by simply trusting in Jesus, but they also had to be circumcised and to keep the law uh, of Moses. And so they added uh, human effort or they added human works now uh, to uh, salvation, teaching that we are saved by trusting in Jesus and, and that's a very dangerous and, Uh, and doing one thing or uh, another. Now, there's a couple of glaring problems with with that. First of all, any and being added to simple faith in Jesus for salvation communicates that somehow uh, that the Jesus' death upon the cross to provide us with the forgiveness of sins, to provide for our salvation, that it isn't enough that somehow what he did on that cross was incomplete and now has to be supplemented in some way on our part uh, on the basis of some work or some human effort uh, by us. But you might remember that when Jesus, as he declared concerning man's salvation, as he was purchasing man's salvation on that very cross that he cried out from that cross, of that salvation, it is finished. He did not cry out on the cross, it is begun, or it has started, and I've given you a good start toward salvation, and now you need to work hard in your own effort to complete it. Jesus has provided the world, he has provided us with a finished salvation. And when something is finished, it doesn't need to be added uh, to. Otherwise, you wouldn't call it finished. And when you try to add something to something that is finished, all you can ever do is to mar that uh, something. And so the Holy Spirit speaks in uh, in no uncertain terms concerning this throughout uh, the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 Paul himself writes, for by grace you've been saved, through faith, and that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
In Galatians chapter 2, and the book of Galatians is given over completely to speaking about this issue. Paul wrote, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed uh, in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And then uh, very forcibly in Galatians chapter 2 verse 21 said, Paul wrote, For I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, uh, then Christ died in vain. The second great glaring error with uh, the teaching of uh, any Judaizer, both then and now, uh, this idea that I can improve upon uh, the salvation that Jesus has provided to us with our own works of some kind, it reveals a a stunning ignorance concerning the righteousness that is required on, uh, of us in order to enter into heaven, in order to qualify number one for a personal relationship with God, and then number two to enter into the holiness uh, of heaven. When he talks about righteousness there in verse nine and throughout the passage, Righteousness speaks of rightness. It speaks of uh, a right onness. It is the right onness that is required by God in order to have a relationship with Him now and in order to enter into uh, heaven forever. And anyone who endeavors to qualify themselves for these things on the basis of our own righteousness or our own uh, right on this, uh, our own human effort is one of three things and perhaps even all three at once. It is either to be a, a, hold a profoundly high view uh, of myself or to hold a profoundly low view of God or to be profoundly uh, ignorant on the subject of righteousness. Again, the righteousness that's required of us in order to have a relationship with God and one day uh, enjoy the glory and the holiness of heaven. And Paul addressed this ignorance in Romans chapter 10 when he wrote concerning the Jewish people, uh, for, but not limited to them. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The translation of that, loose translation, is any attempt to make myself right before God to attain a right standing before God on the basis of my own works, on the basis of my own human effort, it reveals an ignorance in me, an ignorance of the fact that the only righteousness that God can accept is a perfect righteousness. And what is God's solution to that? What is God's provision for that to the sinner 
to us who are anything but perfect in terms of uh, righteousness. The Bible teaches that when we put our trust in Jesus alone for salvation, the perfect righteousness, the perfect right onness of Jesus is put to our uh, account. And, and so Jesus' perfect righteousness becomes the foundation for our relationship with God. So that when God looks at every one of us as, as Christians positionally, he doesn't see our considerable uh, sin and, and shortcomings, but he only sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. Paul put all of that in the way that a person can do by the Holy Spirit in a single sentence in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, when he wrote, For he, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through circumcision. No that we might become the righteousness of God uh, in him. And that is Christianity. And it simply cannot be improved upon. And uh, it is there to be enjoyed, there to be received. Now, Judaizers exist in very large numbers today. Uh, Only they don't run around uh, under that particular banner, under that particular uh, uh, name. And uh, they include any Christian or anyone that claims to be a Christian, claims to represent Christianity, and declares that salvation is not simply a gift from God, uh, that we receive by putting our faith in Jesus for salvation, but that some work of our own has to be added to it, that our salvation is in some way trusting in Jesus and something else. And we could look talk about the Mormons in this uh, regard. We could talk about the Jehovah Witnesses in this regard. We could talk about those who teach that salvation is achieved through faith in Christ and keeping the sacraments uh, in this regard. We could speak about a a massive block of liberal Protestantism uh, today that teaches that a spiritual birth isn't necessary for salvation. Salvation Uh, is achieved by uh, being good and by doing good by means of human effort. You notice the strength of Paul's warning against these Judaizers in verse 2 and the strength of his description uh, of them. He warns us, first of all, to beware of them. And then he describes them as dogs, evil workers, and of the mutilation. Now, in our very, very sensitive culture that we live in today, while everybody's offended at anything except our own thoughts, our own carnality, uh, but offended by anything and everything in everybody else's uh, lives, sometimes this can be shocking to people, this kind of language. But that is the very idea behind it. It's intended to shock us uh, as Christians and to awaken us to the horrible thing that it is 
to take God's message of salvation to mankind, a message built on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and change it into something else. It ought to be unthinkable, but it isn't unthinkable to a large number of people. There's nothing that anyone can do in this world than to mutilate in any way that message of how to be saved and to receive that salvation as a free gift because the consequences uh, of that error are eternal in people's lives. When he calls them dogs, uh, don't think of your Labrador retriever or your Cocker Spaniel. Certainly don't think of a toy poodle. Karen and I are very sensitive on that uh, these days. For the most part in our modern world, dogs are beloved animals, but it wasn't uh, true of all dogs in the ancient world. And wild dogs would roam the streets, they would often roam in packs, uh, they were almost always diseased, and anyone would take every effort to avoid them so as to not be bitten by them and then become infected by whatever disease uh, they were carrying. And so Paul is calling on us as Christians to show that same kind of caution, that same kind of diligence in avoiding uh, these Judaizers and false teachers. He's saying that they are infected uh, with a disease, they're dangerous as a result of it, and they want to affect you, uh, infect you with the same false doctrine that they're infected with. He calls them evil workers. And so he acknowledges they're hardworking, and Paul knew that about them, uh, but they are uh, evil. And anyone who advances a work-based salvation in the name of God is doing evil in this world. It doesn't matter how moral they are. It doesn't matter how sincere or how hardworking they are. He describes them as being of the mutilation, and he likens them here to being uh, mutilators. And so here he refers to their uh, circumcision of people as a means of earning a right standing before God, and he refers to their circumcision as a means of righteousness. He refers to it as a mutilation. In other words, their circumcision accomplished nothing spiritually in the people they were bringing under their legalism. It was an unnecessary mutilation that they were inflicting upon people. Now, concerning self-righteous religion, in verses 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul declares to them and to us, uh, essentially, I've been there and I've done that. And I not only uh, got the t-shirt, but I bought a timeshare in, uh, in this thing. I crushed it. I exceeded self-righteous religion like nobody I knew uh, in, in my life. And as Paul writes now to this, what is largely a, a Gentile church in Philippi, he communicates, I know these people. I excelled in their works-oriented system, and I'm giving you my testimony I'm giving you my word that you are never going to find something better in what they are advancing than what you have in Christ alone. Now, sometimes when people come to us 
and we hear uh, two different people claiming to be authorities on a subject, and they're telling us something that's uh, com- uh, uh, contrary to one another's view, oftentimes what we'll want to know is, what is your authority? What are your credentials uh, for speaking authoritatively uh, on this issue? And on the issue of self-righteous religion, the Apostle Paul had street cred like nobody else uh, had. And he tells them, what he tells them here is not to boast about himself uh, in any way, but to keep them and to keep us from being misled. There's no doubt at all that these Judaizers were coming into these churches, had come into the church at Philippi, and they were appealing uh, to their Jewishness as a means of supporting their message. Paul declared in verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day, as the law of Moses required of all uh, Jewish males. And, And Paul is communicating that I was no convert to Judaism. I wasn't circumcised as a convert later on in life. I was born into it. I was raised in it. I was raised in an observant Jewish home and by observant Jewish uh, parents. And so he deals with the issue of circumcision uh, immediately. He was an authority on circumcision. He said in verse 5, I am of the stock of Israel. In other words, my genealogy and my bloodline goes all the way back to Israel. That is to Jacob. And by virtue of being a descendant of Jacob, also a descendant of Abraham and uh, of Isaac. Paul is saying, I am a full-blooded Jew. He says, I am of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe that produced Israel's first king, King Saul, the tribe that received as its allotment in the land, in the conquering and the conquest of, uh, of the land of Canaan, received the area that included Jerusalem, where the temple would one day uh, be built. He said, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews, uh, though he was raised outside of the land of, of Israel, uh, raised in a a Gentile city called Tarsus. He wasn't raised as a Hellenistic Jew, but he lived completely faithful to the Jewish language and the Jewish culture uh, in that Gentile context. Concerning the law, he said, I was a Pharisee. I was no Sadducee. I was no theological liberal, but I was once a member of the uh, Pharisees the strictest, most serious sect among uh, the religious Jews. They gave their entire lives to the keeping of all 613 laws in the law of Moses. Moses said there was no law that was so small, no law in the law of Moses that was so obscure that I and we as Pharisees did not give attention to it and endeavor to keep that law uh, in our own strength. The Pharisees were drop-dead serious uh, about God's uh, word. And and so Paul was uh, one of the most outwardly moral human beings on the face of the planet at that time. Uh, The Jewish historian at that time by the name of Josephus tells us that there were only 
6,000 Pharisees in the entire world. And the Apostle Paul was one of those uh, 6,000. To be a Pharisee was to be uh, the, the equivalent of uh, being on an Olympic team or being a member of, of special forces. It was a very, very elite group. And Paul, in essence, uh, speaks to the church at Philippi and says, ask these Judaizers if they can make that claim. Ask any of them if they uh, have, have been a Pharisee. And verse 6, concerning religious zeal, he said, I persecuted the church. I was an absolute uh, zealot. Uh, for the things of God. I didn't try to convert the church. I tried to destroy the church. That's the kind of zeal that I had for God. This is the kind of zeal uh, where this zeal took me. And Paul is saying, these people are not new. These people are just getting around uh, to doing what I did 30 years ago. And they're 30 years behind me. Uh, on this uh, journey. And then in verse 6, concerning righteousness, the righteousness which is of the law, he says, I was blameless. And Paul is not declaring here that he was sinless uh, he, a, 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 at all, but he was communicating that he viewed sin seriously in his life. And so even as a Pharisee, when he would sin, he would give the proper offerings that were required in the law of Moses in order for his sin uh, uh, to be uh, covered according to that law. And all to say, as Paul lays these things out, I know religion, I know religious works, I know legalism and self-righteousness inside and out. I know how to excel in it. I know how to rise to the top of it. I've been to the top in it. I know exactly what you will find on the end of that trail. And so let me help you, uh, save you all of the trouble and the frustration and the disappointment in going down that path by telling you that at its very best, verse 8, it is rubbish compared to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then Paul, in verses 7 through 11, he then moves on to give his assessment of these two things. Christianity as it actually is, and then the so-called Christianity that these Judaizers both then and now were offering uh, as he lays these things out. And I want you to notice in verse 7 and 8 the repetition of the words uh, counted, count, and count. The three times a variation of that word are used there. Those words are, uh, as they're being used here in the original language, they are accounting words. In other words, the Apostle Paul, what he does here at this point in this passage is he takes out a ledger sheet, so to speak, and on one side of it he puts the heading self-righteousness. Uh, man-centered attempts to make oneself acceptable to God and to qualify for heaven. And below that heading, he puts all of the assets and all of the liabilities of that, uh, that category. And so he assesses it in terms of profit and loss. And then on the other side of the ledger, Paul writes the heading, Christ righteousness. The very righteousness of Christ that is put to our account 
by virtue of our simple faith or trust in him uh, for the forgiveness of sins and salvation in order to qualify for a relationship with God and to qualify and and be qualified to one day uh, enter into heaven. And below that, he wrote all of the assets and liabilities uh, of that righteousness, again, assessing it in terms of profit and loss. And based upon the teaching of the scriptures, based upon his own experience uh, here, uh, he uh, came to uh, uh, the conclusion that concerning attempting a self-righteous relationship with God, he concludes there is not one single thing he could think of that he could put under the asset uh, side of it. Not one single thing about it that he uh, could... Uh, commend about it. And in fact, he understands this self-confidence to be uh, so proud in its origin and and such an affront to God, an offensive to God, that the only thing that he can write below it in verse 8 is uh, rubbish. And the translators of the New King James Version, uh, trying to be careful about our sensitivities as Christians, they translate the word uh, rubbish. If you have an old King James, you see the word dung there. And that's a little closer to what it is that uh, the word that is used here. It includes rubbish, but it includes also uh, dung. It carries the idea of garbage, dung, refuse, something that you would throw to the dogs. And all of this, of course, is in perfect alignment with the Old Testament prophet Isaiah speaking of our righteousness, our ability to make ourselves clean on our own before God. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. He doesn't say that all of our unrighteousnesses are like filthy rags. He said our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. You and I at our best, as sinful and as flawed as we are, at our best, the righteousness that we can produce is as a filthy rag uh, to God. And under this imputed righteousness column. He can't find any liabilities for it at all, only assets, and he describes it in verse 8 as excellence. And in fact, he can hardly hold himself back as he thinks about this righteousness that God has provided to us, and uh, he begins to extol uh, this righteousness that is ours through faith in Christ. And so he lists those things, the blessings of this righteousness uh, through faith in Christ, through the section. And the first thing that he lists, because he interrupted himself as he talked about having explored the the, the legalism of, of, of the Judaizers, he said, number one in terms of assets, we are in verse three, the circumcision. The circumcision. Physical circumcision was a sign of the covenant made between God and the descendants of Abraham, the Jews. And what it represented physically 
It was a physical reminder to Abram or Abraham and his descendants that God would establish his covenant with Abraham uh, just as he had promised. What circumcision represented spiritually was a cutting away of the flesh. And it reminded the Jewish people that they were not to be ruled by the flesh, but that they were to be ruled by uh, God. And so physical circumcision was an outward symbol, to be an outward symbol of their hearts, that their heart was no longer dominated by uh, the flesh. And Paul declares that just as physical circumcision made the Jewish people unique among all other people in the world, what makes us different from all other people in the world as Christians is not a physical circumcision, but a greater one, a spiritual one, the ultimate expression of the physical circumcision, and that is the circumcision of our hearts where our hearts are no longer dominated by the flesh and the sins of the flesh, but now dominated by the Holy Spirit. There's absolutely nothing wrong with physical circumcision, but it was never intended by God to be a means of salvation or a replacement uh, of Jesus uh, uh, for salvation and uh, the, the cleansing of the heart that only he can provide. He said in verse three, we worship God in the spirit. We don't have to commune with God by way of religious rites or religious ceremonies. We commune with God immediately in and through the Holy Spirit. Self-righteous religion, generally, it tells us that God uh, is uh, worshiped uh, best on special days, in special, uh, unique buildings, through certain rituals. But we realize as Christians, because the Holy Spirit has come into our lives, that we can worship God with uh, immediate intimacy, no matter where we are on the face of the planet, no matter what day, no matter what time of day, there is no Holy Spirit element involved in self-righteous religion. Zero. Because the Holy Spirit will not honor it with his blessing. Because as Jesus said concerning the Holy Spirit, he will come to testify of me, and he will never give his blessing or his presence or his encouragement to anything that says that Jesus is not enough. There is no Holy Spirit element involved in self-righteous religion. And so you take away every provision and experience of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life his work of providing us with the will to do and the power to do of God's uh, good uh, pleasure, uh, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, his work of sanctification in our life, his comfort in our life, his leading in our life, his giving illumination to the word of God in our lives, his intercession uh, for us, and on and on and on the list goes, and self-righteous religion cannot offer any of that because the Holy Spirit cannot 
and will not ever bless it. He goes on in verse 3 and says, we rejoice or we glory or we boast in Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the focus of our Christian life. And that is the exact opposite of self-righteous religion. Christianity is not a life of depressing self-obsession or self-focus or negative self-assessment. And that's all self-righteous religion uh, is. Our boast in the Christian life is not in who and what we are or what we aren't, but in who and what he is. His death, his burial, his resurrection for us, and his love for us that's undeserved. And those things are a a source, an inexhaustible source for joy and confidence in a Christian's life. He goes on in verse three and says, we have no confidence in the flesh. That is our salvation, our in, the intimacy of our relationship with God isn't based upon our ups and downs. It isn't based upon our uh, three steps forward and our two steps back so often uh, as we're growing in uh, the Christian life. Uh, It isn't based upon our victories and our failures. We know that we're saved. We know that God loves us. We know that God enjoys his relationship uh, uh, with us. Even when we fall down and we skin our knees or even when uh, we plow into a brick wall spiritually, And we realize that, yes, we need to repent and we need to confess our our sin when we do so. But we know we can. We know that we can. And that is a tremendous confidence that is unique to Christianity. And, uh, and, And so that as we turn back to God, we know that God won't hold our relationship with him over our heads when we do fall short. You notice fifth in verse eight, and there's only 70 uh, of these. He says, he speaks of the assets of all of this, and he speaks of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And the word knowledge here is a variation of the firm gnosis, uh, Greek word gnosis, uh, and uh, gnosko, it means a knowledge that comes by experience. And what Paul is rejoicing in here is in the personal relationship with Jesus that's a part of our salvation that this salvation not only provides us with the forgiveness uh, of sins, but it, 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 and that that forgiveness has occurred, but the forgiveness of sins has occurred in order to bring us into a relationship with Jesus as well. Paul never lost his awe over the fact that Christianity was not merely about the forgiveness of sins, but that God found a way in all of this to bring us into relationship uh, with him. You think about that for us as Christians this morning. I have a relationship with God. And he never lost his awe over that. And, uh, and we certainly don't want to uh, either. The self-righteous know nothing of that. He says in verse 8, 6, 
uh, that it is to gain Christ. And so Paul had committed his entire childhood, his entire youth, his entire young adult life uh, in this self-righteous religion, and yet he considered the loss of everything that he had invested in it through all of those decades as no loss at all. Uh, compared to gaining Christ. And here he writes now this letter to the Philippians some 30 years after his conversion, 25 years, uh, 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 after 25 years of active Christian uh, service. And he felt the same way. There is nothing in this world that compares with gaining Christ. And when Paul says, he came into my life, when he came into our lives, we instantly became the wealthiest people in the world. And then number seven in verse nine, he said to be found in him, that is Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from the law, but that which, uh, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness is, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, uh, the righteousness uh, which is from God by faith. And again, he speaks about the superior uh, righteousness in the eyes of God supplied to us by Jesus. And then number eight in verse 10, he declares this is the only place to come and know the power of his resurrection. And again, because Christianity supplies us with the will to do, the want to do, and live the Christian life, uh, and the power uh, to live the Christian life and to bring pleasure to God upon being born again, uh, that same power of the Holy Spirit that uh, raised Jesus from the dead is inside of us. We enjoy a quality of life in Christ that no one in a self-righteous religion comes up, uh, uh, approaches in any way. And in fact, nobody else in the world uh, experiences a quality of life we could never know otherwise. The ceiling, in terms of the heights that you can go to in, in self-righteousness, uh, in terms of self-righteous religion and self-righteous living, the ceiling is always determined by our own strength. And here in the Christian life, Paul says, there is no ceiling to it. Uh, whatever we read of and whatever we desire in the teaching of Jesus in the Bible, whatever we read and we desire is found in the scriptures. All of those things can be ours. Romans chapter 8, verse 11, but the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then ninth there in verse 10, uh, it is, this is the only place where we can experience the fellowship of Christ's suffering being conformed to his death. And Paul is saying that even when we experience suffering because of our identification with Christ and our obedience to him uh, in this world, it's never wasted. Even suffering 
brings us into a deeper understanding and relationship uh, with Christ, a deeper understanding of of him, a deeper Christ-likeness. In other words, everything in this life, everything from the mountaintops of this Christian life to the valleys of this Christian life, all of it is redeemed and drawing us toward, toward Christ and making us more like him. And then finally, there it is, In verse 11, he declares it's the only place where we can uh, find an absolute confidence of entering into heaven after this life. And the language that he uses there in verse 11, he doesn't use the language that he uses here to communicate that he is uncertain in any way about him one day entering into heaven. It is the language of, of humility concerning these things. And one of the great problems with any system that teaches that we can earn our way uh, to heaven or that we need to earn our way to heaven through self-righteousness or human effort is you never know if you have done enough in order to earn it. And thus there is never any confidence uh, of, of entering into heaven after death. No ultimate confidence And that can put a pretty serious dent in your peace uh, in life, a pretty serious dent in joy in life. And this salvation that's received by faith in uh, Jesus, it provides us with a confidence of heaven that is so great that the Bible speaks of our glorification Our one day standing as Christians in heaven speaks of it in the past tense. Romans chapter 8 verse 30. And moreover whom he, that is Christ, predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And so for us as Christians here this morning, self-righteous, human Uh, self-righteousness and human effort as a means of salvation, as a foundation uh, for a relationship with God is the, a mortal enemy of joy. You will never find it there. You will never experience it in that place. And so Paul says, Beware of anyone who tries to lure you into it. Paul says, I've been to the mountaintop. I mean, if there was any self-righteous system in the world that could provide a way by means of works, it would be uh, Judaism. It would be by means of keeping the law of Moses, but nobody can keep the law of Moses as a means of righteousness because that's not why it was given. It was given to reveal our sins and to show us that we needed a different foundation for our relationship with God than our own self-righteousness. And so Paul said, I've been to the mountaintop of all of this. It has nothing to offer a Christian. It is the difference between uh, rubbish and excellence. And if you sit here this morning and you're not yet uh, a Christian, the same thing is true for you. And so for you to put your faith in Christ this morning, to be born again by the Holy Spirit, 
and to have the very right on this righteousness of Christ put to your account so that positionally when God looks at you now and forever, all he sees is that righteousness. And now to begin a personal relationship with God that is based upon that and responding to that goodness of God, not to your, to your works, that relationship is uh, offered to you by God today and uh, we will be up in front immediately after the service and uh, we will be here to answer any questions you might have and pray with you to begin that relationship with God. We live in a world where, and we certainly live in a country, where if you ask the average person whether they are a Chiefs fan or an Eagles fan, uh, you ask any person that you want uh, and you say, what is your conf- are you going to heaven one day? Yes. What is your confidence for that? Well, I try to do good and I try to be good. I try to do more good than I do bad. And here you have uh, as if God is grading on a curve related uh, to this. And, and we live in a, an entire world that is seduced to this lie that somehow in my own effort, I can qualify myself for heaven. And and so now you know that you can't. But more than that, you know what God has provided to you uh, in order that you can by virtue of your faith in Christ. Come forward and be saved today. If you need prayer for anything, any of us in this room this morning, any need in your life, these same men and women up in front would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, sometimes as we read these things, and this is familiar ground for for so many of us, but we realize that you repeat yourself not to be tedious, but for our safety. And we look at the world around us and how seduced it is in all directions, not just the secular realm, but the religious realm, into this idea that somehow this inflated view of ourselves, this low view of you, this ignorance of righteousness, Lord, it prevails everywhere. And we thank you for the clarity on this subject that Paul wrote with to come against this and and as a protection for us to ever fall prey to it in the course of our lives. I pray and we pray for each person in this room tonight, uh, this morning, if anyone is being pulled in some kind of a direction in this regard, that you would use this to bring them to safety. I pray for all of us in this room today that if we have made our own works the foundation for our relationship with you or our intimacy with you, rather than accepting that it's based upon your grace and uh, upon uh, a righteousness that you've provided to us and that now we obey in response to your goodness and your grace to us, that you would bring us back to that simplicity and that joy as well. And I pray this and we pray this this morning.
In Jesus' name, amen. Mike, would you close us?